The blockchain boom has led to vast investment into the research of distributed systems and cryptography. In this podcast, we interview experts about developments in these fields and the people using them to build new, interconnected networks of people and machines that some are calling the Third Web. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. Subud Sharma is a professor of computer science at IIT Delhi, one of the most prestigious universities in India. While he's not teaching, Subud conducts research into the formal verification of distributed systems, and his work on the automated formal verification of smart contracts has drawn international interest. I called up Subud because I was looking for someone to explain an approach to writing software called the actor model. The actor model essentially involves sandboxing tasks in such a way that complexity is minimized and all behaviors of a software system can be known under all conditions. Currently, the actor model is applied to the management of telecommunications networks through the Erlang language and also in secure servers. Understanding the way robust distributed systems are constructed assists in the assessment of platform designs and also gives us a view into the future of the ultimate distributed system, the third web. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background, Subodh? So my name is Subodh Sharma. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Computer Science at IIT Delhi. IIT stands for Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. It is located in the capital of India. So I, I did my PhD from University of Utah, located in a beautiful city of Salt Lake City. And my dissertation work was on the verification of distributed systems, particularly systems programmed using message passing interface and I created a runtime schedulers, verification schedulers or applications developed using message passing systems. Since then, I, you know, subsequently after that, I uh, uh, joined the Department of Computer Science at University of Oxford. I was there for a little less than three years working with the systems verification group headed by Daniel Croning at University of Oxford. He's a professor there. And I was, again, looking at uh, distributed systems verification problem, but uh, my you know, the kind of techniques that I was employing were uh, slightly different. I was looking at symbolic analysis techniques as opposed to uh, runtime verification techniques. After uh, completing my postdoc stint there, I started as a faculty member in IIT Delhi. And I'm enjoying my stay here. I primarily teach uh, distributed systems, verification of distributed systems, programming languages, and techniques in automated formal verification of systems in general. Right. Well, so the reason that I wanted to speak to you, Subud, is that the actor model itself is this buzzword that I hear a lot, but I don't really feel that I truly understand what it means. And it does seem to be central to understanding programming models that are emerging around kind of secure distributed computing blockchains and, and the rest of it. So I was wondering if, I guess, you could explain to us what the actor model is and then also kind of where it came from, where we see it deployed, what the advantages are that it affords, etc. 
Yeah, so that's actually um, pretty interesting because when we spoke, I told you that that was, uh, so I worked during my PhD years uh, in an area related to message passing and distributed systems in general. Much of my work was associated with MPI, which stands for Message Passing Interface. It's a standard for allowing communication among loosely coupled uh, processors or nodes or cores in the system. And in a lot of ways, MPI is very similar to actor model. And then the question essentially becomes, what is an actor model? You know, if I were to put it very simply, actor model is basically an abstract model of computation for capturing concurrent interactions in the system. So that's sort of a very high level definition of what actor model is. It's nothing but a model of computation, which is essentially an abstraction or in other words, formal way or a mathematical way to understand how system or components of a distributed system must behave, must uh, compute and must communicate in order for the system to progress or evolve. So actor is like, you know, a smallest, it's, it's a primitive entity of computation. So task is somewhat similar to an actor, but not exactly the same. Uh, process or an object, if you Google what an actor is, you would often find tons of blogs or articles which would say that, you know, it behaves very much like an object. It has its own memory space, uh, objects are named and whatnot. So these are the analogies through which one could understand what an actor is. Actor is like an independent component of a system it has its own address space it's akin to objects in an object-oriented programming language or processes in an operating system or for that matter tasks say in an open mp kind of a programming language right so it's a theoretical framework so once having understood what an actor is then you know the next obvious step is how these actors sort of allow computation and communication so there it it has a lot of similarities with other message passing models such as MPI, right? So actors communicate via explicit messages, unlike threads, which share certain address space within a process, and therefore threads could communicate each other via shared memory, actors don't. So actors here, they communicate via explicit messages. So imagine if I were an actor and you were an actor, then we don't have shared objects uh, to communicate with each other. I'll explicitly send a message to you by saying that I'm sending a message with an explicit destination address. And that essentially brings us to the following point that every actor has an address, an address associated with it. And the kind of communication that follows in an actor model is sort of asynchronous in nature, which means that imagine there are three actors. Let's simplify the model. Two of them are senders and one is a receiver actor. Right, So the sender actors could simultaneously be sending messages named for this particular receiver actor. What can happen is these messages, because of their individual process latencies or network latencies, can arrive in whichever order on the receiver side. So that's the asynchrony. It also allows, just like other message passing models, it allows a great overlap between communication and computation. So if I were to draw some examples from, say, an MPI landscape, I could write a program of producers and consumer 
as separate processes. So producer is a process, consumer is a process. You know, producer may produce a task, send it to the consumer so that the consumer can consume it via an explicit message. And while the consumer is consuming the message, a producer may do its local computation. It may so happen that while the producer has sent the message, the message has not really left a process boundary. So for example, it's akin to saying that I am trying to send you a message, but the message is in flight. It's under processing by the runtime, right? There are models in which this, when the process is in, uh, when, when there's a runtime uh, processing going on to, you know, sort of marshal the object and, you know, serialize it and then make a message out of it, the sending process could virtually block, right? So these are uh, synchronous models where you send and then you block until unless the, the sent data payload has been copied into the receiver's address space. So that's sort of a, a, you know, a synchronous or a rendezvous communication model. But in an asynchronous communication model, what's essentially is happening is, as a process, I will indicate to the runtime that, look, I'm sending the message and I have registered my intent of sending this message with you and let the control be given back to me so that I can continue with my computation or other tasks. And the runtime essentially will handle the entire process of making the message, sending it over the network, making sure that the message has been received by the receiver and so on and so forth. So that's the asynchronous communication model, which is very uh, typical of, uh, you know, actor-based concurrency. The follow-on to that then is like, why is concurrent execution and concurrent message passing so challenging and so important? All right, so let's look at the first part of it. Why is concurrency in general hard to reason about? And why is it difficult to program concurrent systems? There are just too many scenarios to reason about at the programmer side. So if from the viewpoint of a programmer, imagine that uh, I have a scenario where I have a bunch of tasks that need to be completed. So imagine a manager-worker kind of a relationship. So there's a manager node, which has got a bunch of tasks that need to be addressed or completed. And uh, the manager node delegates these tasks to, uh, say, the worker nodes. All right. And now what's happening? So worker nodes are independently computing on the tasks that have been given to them. And at some point, they compute the result and through messages, send the result back to the manager process or the manager node. Now, it may so happen that the manner in which, when I say the manner, the order in which I receive the messages or rather the manager node receive the messages, result messages, from each of the worker nodes affects the correctness of the overall computation on the manager side. So that's the high-level abstract uh, scenario that I, I have put forth that manager has essentially delegated tasks to the workers, workers compute their partial results, send back their partial results to the manager. And the order in which these partial results have arrived at the manager affects the correctness of the reduction that the manager would perform on those uh, partial results. So it's, uh, you know, if, so if somebody is familiar with the MapReduce kind of a model, that's is essentially the example that I'm trying to give here, right? Except that in uh, reduction, it's just a one-step process on the manager side. Here, here I'm, I'm just elaborating or making it more 
fine in in its granularity of uh, operation in the sense that the manager has been given the responsibility to order these partial results in a particular way now with this as a scenario now imagine the headache that the programmer who is going to write the manager code has to deal with so the headache would be huge because now he the now the the, the programmer has to worry about okay what's going to be the order of arrival of these messages and in what possible combinations can these messages arrive right so if you were to concretize the situation say with five processes each with uh, five messages being so each of the five worker processes are sending five messages to the manager process then uh, the space of behaviors in which the program behavior would lie concrete program behavior would be live is is extremely large it's exponential in size right because these five messages from each of these processes can interleave with the five messages coming from other worker processes so this interleaved execution semantics essentially leads to the explosion in the number of behaviors that the programmer has to first think about before they even program the system and so because of this the system itself can become extremely or the behavior of the system can become extremely complex and hard to reason about and loses all determinism as well oh uh, well yeah so the whole idea of not having determinism is to get performance gains so it's like a double edged sword so you would want to have non determinism in the system just to have a more performant system but in the process you are also making the reasoning about the system more complex because non determinism essentially leads to a very large number of program behaviors to reason about wait okay so i've just leapt into determinism but that's going ahead of what we were just talking about then yeah so for example so you would ideally want to have determinism say for example you want to uh, so you are programming a scientific computing code for example you are trying to parallelize newton raphson method to compute the roots of uh, an equation right now there you would want to have an output determinism which means for a given input to a program no matter how many times you run the program you would want to have the same output right so that's output determinism but the non determinism is essentially will be manifesting in the way in which the messages arrive when you parallelize it to different processes when you divide the tasks and delegate them to different processes how these processes interact with you that can be non deterministic and that should not really affect the output determinism or non determinism aspect of the system but in the process what you have done is that the moment you have introduced non determinism in communication between processes you have a good handle to deal with network latencies and processes being waiting for forever for io operations and so on so forth okay so what we really get from the actor model is the opportunity to have deterministic output with non-deterministic communication yes yes you could have that in fact you can also so actor model is fairly generic i mean you could have unbounded non-determinism in your program which means that you could have unbounded number of actors you could have unbounded number of messages there is no ordering which is enforced on on these messages so actor model is fairly generic in the way it's been described so well we're here could you explain determinism could you define determinism bearing in mind this is a just like me armchair tech enthusiast audience so determinism so let's take an example of a function right a function such as y is equal to x square and x is drawn from the domain of say integers right 
So this is a function which is a deterministic function, which means that no matter with what value of x you provide, if the value of x remains the same in every run of this function, you will get the same output, right? For example, if you give x is equal to 2, you are going to get the output as 4. Why? Because it's going to take an input value and square it and give you the result back. This is sort of a determinism in the sense that this is computational determinism that your function is deterministic in which a single input will map to a unique output, right? So that's the definition of a function also. So that gives you determinism. So the larger def definition of a determinism would be given an input, I should be able to get the output deterministically and uniquely. So they are sort of interchangeable here. In communication, a deterministic communication would be, imagine there's a sender and a receiver. A sender sends to a receiver by explicitly providing the address of the receiver. And the receiver in turn says that I am expecting a send, a message from a particular sender with a specified address. In deterministic communication, the sender and the receiver deterministically know from which process a receiver is going to expect a message and to which process a sender is going to send a message to. Right? So that's deterministic communication. A non-deterministic communication, on the other hand, would be something like this. The receiver could be modeled as a mailbox or a postbox. Right? So there could be potentially a number of senders sending messages to a receiver. The receiver does not care from which sender the message is coming from. As long as the message has arrived in the mailbox, it will consume that message. So this is called a sort of a non-deterministic communication where on the receiver end, the receiver is completely oblivious to or doesn't care where the messages are coming from. Further actions of the receiver, if they are not dependent on particular identities of the senders of these messages, then you say that the system is non-deterministic in a sense that communication is non-deterministic. Where is the actor model used today? Where does this provide value? Oh, actor models uh, uh, are fairly popular. I mean, uh, if we were to talk about its uses, then uh, you know, a large part of the telecommunication networks use actor models. For example, telecommunication networks which are modeled using Erlang language. Erlang language is a perfect example where actor models are employed. So not just that, in fact, much of web server programming, web services, HTTP server programming is done using actor models. I don't know if you know about this framework called Akka, A-K-K-A. -K -K -A. No, I don't, but I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so Akka is a framework which is developed using Scala language. It has various language bindings, but it could be executed under J in, in JVM, Java Virtual Machine. And a lot of web services which are developed using RESTful APIs, really what goes into writing these web services where people exploit the actor model is through Akka. So it's quite remarkable to see that actor model is quite pervasive in its use or in its deployment in the construction of distributed systems worldwide. So not just HTTP or web services, but also telecommunication services and a lot of other in fact, you know, if you were to parallelize scientific computing codes, you might want to use actor models based concurrency. They provide strong isolation. They allow, like I said before, overlap in communication and computation with asynchronous communication. There's a lot of good in there. And because of the fact that there are all named entities, which means each actor comes with a fixed address, 
people have started using it in blockchain so these smart contracts which has recently been uh, a topic of big research activity and i mean a lot of people are looking at smart contracts not just uh, researchers but uh, you know uh, developers tech enthusiasts so these smart contracts are essentially actors with uh, particular addresses attached to them and languages such as solidity and go provide these semantics and that's what makes actor models sort of very uh, powerful because a they are generic b they provide developers with very interesting features to work with that allows them to create scalable distributed systems and secure distributed systems right let's take the example of you know anonymous entities in the network if you have a network with anonymous ent- entities you, uh, one would have to put in a lot more effort to make it secure but if you have named entities then you exactly know who are uh, the participating entities in the network okay this is really interesting that i mean that brings it full circle to the general subject matter of this podcast and part of the reason that i'm so interested in the actor model at the moment is that i'm i'm exploring what are the programming models and and what are the architectures of these software modules right you know we smart contract is this jargon term that has a whole bunch of weird stuff wrapped up in it but really these are these these are software modules running in a secure computing environment and so i'm i'm trying to learn about how these things are being developed and what they do and how they work and how they're going to be advanced moving forward because really all we've seen in the the popular technology space is ethereum smart contracts and so it's interesting that you bring it all the way back to blockchain because that was really the impetus for me asking you to come on the show so oh interesting yeah so that's a great question actually uh, smart contracts are nothing but you know these small functions or modules that you would write the interesting thing is that the semantics of these smart contracts are transactional in nature so these are tasks they will execute much like transactions in what you hear in database systems so either the, the the smart contract would execute in its entirety or it will not which means you know partial execution will not take not entirely i mean some of the there's a subtlety there but let me try to uh, simplify the discussion by just saying that right now it's transactional in nature in the sense that either the transaction invoking the smart contract meets its uh, specifications and therefore the transaction goes through or it does not period there's another side of this as well and that is when you build a system right when you write code and then you run it on a decentralized network or a, a highly replicated network with uh, diverse made of kind of nodes with diverse hardware what you wind up with is these lots of different execution environments that may lead to different outcomes right and so part of it i suppose as well is that you need to be sure that this unit of code the software module executes in the same way in any runtime environment that's right that's that's a great observation and that's correct so you would ideally want to have a smart contract which will execute deterministically because you are encoding some sort of a business logic right regardless of which environment it is executed under because then you you would the yeah they wouldn't be able to come to agreement on the output right you'd you'd get like so so the agreement is more on the business logic as opposed to the environment so the coding has to be so the coding of this uh, smart contract logic 
has to be completely oblivious of the environment under which it will run. It's so interesting. Like this is there's so much more to this than I ever really imagined. You know, making these distributed systems function properly. Yeah, it, it, it can be quite a nightmare, I can tell you, uh, because uh, some of these. So for for the longest time, you would be thinking that oh, this system is working according to what I expected, and suddenly there would be some behavior that you did not think about gets manifested, leading to a crash or a deadlock or some bug. And uh, the main reason for that is because distributed systems. It ties back to that discussion we were having a few minutes back about. The fact that most these most of these concurrent systems have exponential number of behaviors. So as the size of the system grows, the number of behaviors also grow in accordance with the degree of concurrency in the system, leading to the fact that it becomes very hard to reason about these systems because there are just too many behaviors. So ideally, you would want to ideally you would want to encode the business logic in a smart contract that that does not get affected by its environment, but that. Rarely happens in practice. Most smart contracts that are written, that we have shown in our uh, research work, which got published earlier this year, are buggy. Which means that the developers did not think through that under what all circumstances such these smart contracts could be made vulnerable. Can you tell us about the history of the actor model? I mean, if you if you look at some of the research material online, people would say that actor model has been at least four decades or five decades old people have been working from mid 1970s on this actor model typically the community gives credit to Irene Grief Gul Aga as the initial people who actually made complete this theory of actor models by defining the operational semantics for communication among parallel processes uh, Gul Aga's PhD in 1984 his dissertation work essentially gave you know um, a very uh, detailed transition based model of concurrent compute computation and distributed systems and you would find a lot of material that people started working from 19 you know there was henry baker also involved in it but i think that some of these mot- i mean there was a lot of work which was going parallelly around that time so for example tony hoare was working on communication of sequential processes and some of his landmark work got published in 1978 he was defining uh, you know a programming language to capture the computation and communication among sequential processes and it belonged to a family of theory of concurrent computation uh, for which he was also awarded uh, the turing award in the later years in fact some of the languages such as go and closure use csp semantics a while later robin milner came in and you know gave this entire theory on communicating concurrent processes and communicating so ccs machines were or ccs model of concurrency was very much similar to actor model an actor model and ccs model came around pretty much the same time at least that's my view and i could be mistaken in it but that's my take on it so ccs communicating concurrent systems were essentially labeled transition systems capturing concurrency where the communication is not happening among just sequential processes but the processes themselves were concurrent in nature that's very similar to what actor model also assumes so the foundational work was done pretty much between 1975 to 1990 so that's largely the history and then around 19 mid 90s a lot of efforts started happening in the area of message passing interface that's what it's called now 
and a large community of non-CS programmers, for example, chemical engineers or mechanical engineers, aero modelers, weather simulation experts, and so on and so forth, or much of what uh, simulation goes in biosciences and biotechnology and so on and so forth, those systems uh, largely are programmed using MPI, which are... So if, if, if you were to ask me, MPI is sort of a lingua franca for high-performance computing uh, for a very, very long time, at least all through the first decade of the century. And now there is a lot of debate that, look, creating MPI systems is not that straightforward. It requires expert knowledge and so on and so forth. But it has its run, and it still is one of the dominant programming APIs to program supercomputers and HPCs in order to create distributed systems. Much of what we see in MPI was influenced by this work, early work in mid-80s and 70s by these folks, Tony Hoare, Robin Milner, Eric Grief, Gulagha, Actor Model Concurrency, CSP, and CCS. So that's largely the history of what I see where Actor Model is coming. So it's, there, there were a lot of parallel efforts that were going and each were, I mean, they were, they were influencing each other. And that's how these models came out. It's interesting to hear stories about these early days of computer science, early days from my perspective, at least, and just how all of these things, were, you know, it just must have been pure passion back in those days, because this would have been before a lot of this stuff had applications. Well, I think, yeah, so applications were there. People realized that there were a lot of applications where one could use concurrency. It's just that the model of how do you essentially specify or how to exploit this concurrency was not very formalized. And they had to come up with language, they had to come up with semantics, they had to come up with the entire mathematics of creating a system and providing it to the programmer so that they could effectively uh, exploit this concurrency in the program that they developed using primitives and what are the semantics of those primitives. Otherwise, it will become very difficult, right? Because I mean, programming language, so software, application development is just a part of the entire system design. Then there has to be compilers who need to understand that, okay, so this is a parallel application. How do I compile it? And how do I create a binary? And how do I essentially engineer a runtime which if, which takes this binary and run on a multiprocessor machine in a very effective way? The foundation of all of this was laid out then through these works. It's pretty cool. I love like peering into the past and seeing how all of this stuff had its genesis just so long ago with these greats from back in the fossilized years of the 70s, you know. It's amazing because you think of this stuff as being way way more contemporary and and probably I I should also put out a disclaimer saying that I may have missed a lot of names uh, uh you know who have contributed and primarily because you know <laughs> My knowledge about its entire development is partial and half-baked. So uh, I, may, I may have missed out names. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like a pretty a reasonably faithful description, C- certainly more so than I had any idea about. So it gives me a place to pursue further research. You've done some work in the blockchain space yourself and some work on formally verified kind of blockchain-based computing systems. Could you give us just a, a, a quick rundown of, of what you've done just so that we get that in there as well? Because, you know, we had a chat and it was really interesting to hear what you'd done and your take on how to develop secure systems. 
Yeah, sure. So this was a joint work with some of my research collaborators from IBM India Research Lab. And uh, uh, it, it really started with the fact that we realized that, so after the 2016 DAO bug, we realized that these smart contracts are really vulnerable in the way they get executed. And essentially, these are immutable pieces of code. I mean, once it is put on blockchain, you cannot change it, right? You cannot patch it and so on and so forth. I mean, with desktop applications, you come across a buggy application, you can point it back to the developer and say, hey, your application is uh, is, is crashing my system and here is a trace of the system and the developer can go back, look at, his, at their application and patch it and give you an updated copy of that application. But that's not the case with smart contracts. Once they are put on blockchain, they are sort of immutable, right? And therefore, if uh, a vulnerable or a buggy smart contract gets on blockchain, it significantly increases the possibility of creating scenarios where people may end up losing real money. So that was essentially the motivation with which we started looking at smart contract verification, because until then, People had looked at this problem that, well, smart contracts are buggy. We would want to, I mean, ours was perhaps the first work which provided sound guarantees of if our analysis came back with the result that a particular smart contract is not buggy, then it was indeed the case. If I were to explain what we did, essentially, we took smart contracts from this publicly available Ethereum platform, got all those publicly available smart contracts for which the source code was available. So our analysis assumed that the source code is uh, available to us and not just the byte code. And what essentially we did was we created a semantic preserving translation of the smart contracts, program translation of these smart contracts from whichever language they were coded in, say Go or Solidity to a particular abstract language or intermediate language representation of our choice, which was verification friendly. It was friendly to the the entire process of verification. When I said that this program translation was semantic preserving, it means that uh, essentially the translated program in the IR preserved all those behaviors that could have manifested in the original smart contract that we analyzed. So this translated IR appear to be, as I said before, is verification friendly. So you could insert checks into this translated program, the checks that essentially test whether the smart contract is sticking to its specification or to its business logic. And then what we do is we essentially, with this translated program, with these additional checks that we introduce, we feed this to an automated tool It's essentially a technique called model checking, symbolic model checking. There are many tools which perform symbolic model checking. One of the tools that we used is called Seahorn, S-E-A-H-O-R-N. What we did was we took this translated program with the checks that were inserted into it and fed it to this symbolic model checking tool. It's completely automated. And what it did was it checked whether there are scenarios in this translated program that would violate the checks that we had introduced. If the tool comes back with a report saying that it cannot find any such behavior, it's a mathematical guarantee that that is indeed the case. Okay. So it essentially is a way of proving that adverse behavior can't manifest in the execution of the... uh... Correct. 
under all possible inputs so we were not input driven we were oblivious to whichever in so we took smart contracts and analyze them in full generality in the sense that no matter which environment or which input is driving this particular smart contract code if there is a behavior that can lead to a buggy scenario then our tool our technique should be able to find it wow that's awesome yeah to our surprise we found uh, a lot of lot of smart contracts with buggy behaviors such as integer overflows underflows leading to loss of money we found transactional reordering reentrancy bugs in our paper we detail an entire class or five different class of bugs which we located in these publicly available smart contracts and the total worth of money lost in these publicly available smart contracts we realized was in the tune of almost you know 200 300 million dollars so that's not a small amount of money this has been a really great session subud and it's really given me a whole bunch of new ground to explore to better understand how all of this is being developed and moving forward and in what directions i should be focusing my own research so you know it's a, it's a great privilege yeah i mean thanks i mean uh, i enjoyed this discussion and um, thanks for bringing me to this platform i mean academics rarely get this opportunity <laughs> and i think there has to be a tighter integration between academics who are working in their own silos and the larger community who is actually and directly responsible in the development process of technology there has to be a tighter integration so because it's sort of a feedback loop we also get to know what are the interesting research problems where is the actual interest in the development community right so that's great thanks for listening to the third web If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes. Follow on Twitter at the Third Web or visit the thethirdweb.net for episode notes, further episodes and also filmed interviews.